Disrupting Japan, Episode 41. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Once again, I've got a special show for you today. There will be no guests, no wine, no playful banter with someone speaking English as a second language. Today, it's just you and me. For the next 20 minutes or so, I'll be whispering in your ear about something I consider very important, but that not enough people are talking about in Japan. I get asked pretty frequently by both government officials and by individuals running innovation initiatives at large companies what Japan can do to foster innovation and to help create a more startup-friendly environment. Now, long-time Disrupting Japan listeners know most of the best answers to these questions, so I won't repeat them here. The people asking these questions have the best of intentions. They really do want to see things change for the better in Japan. But the inevitable flaw in their question tends to be an underlying assumption that startups can be supported and fostered top-down. Now, there is a lot of things that the government can do, and is doing, to foster innovation here. But too many people seem to envision a system where their program is at the center of a startup community, or where startups will come to them for assistance, rather than what they can do to support the existing communities. The Japan startup ecosystem is becoming robust enough that almost no new entity can insert itself as a leader, regardless of their level of funding. And that's a very good thing. The Tokyo startup community is not really led by startups yet. VCs still have more sway here, but things are changing. More and more people are beginning to accept the idea that the social and economic changes that startups will introduce will not be decided or controlled by the economic or political establishment. Of course, politicians and industry leaders have certainly not embraced the idea yet. For the most part, they're looking to startups as a kind of economic engine that can kick the economy into high gear and will benefit society as a whole. And that most likely will happen, but not the way they think it will. I can rarely get bureaucrats and executives to really grasp this point. But Disrupting Japan listeners will understand the far-reaching impact of startups much better. So I think you will appreciate some of the surprises Japan is in for in the coming years. You see, politicians and industrialists dream that Japan will develop an innovative subculture that will create opportunity and economic growth but leave the existing power structure and social structure untouched. But that simply can't happen. Think of it this way. If you have a forest, and then you take all the butterflies out, you don't have that same forest minus butterflies. You've got something new. It's an ecosystem. The birds that fed on the butterflies will start to die out, the plants that the butterflies fed on will begin to thrive, things will be thrown out of balance for a while, and eventually 
a new stable system will emerge. And the same thing happens when you introduce butterflies into a forest where there were none before. You don't have the same forest plus butterflies. The balance is upset for a while until something different and quite unpredictable takes its place. Perhaps the best example of this is when wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park in 1995. One of the main reasons behind this move was to control the elk population, which had grown out of control and had grazed away a lot of the plant life to, well, almost nothing, really. So they introduced a few dozen wolves, and these wolves did kill a few of the elk, as was expected. But the side effects were massive. You see, the elk changed their behavior. They started avoiding exposed valleys and riverbanks. Within a few years, vegetation in those areas began to recover, and this attracted other animals into the area, like birds and beavers. Also, with this vegetation cover and the new ecosystem, erosion decreased, the riverbanks began to stabilize, and the rivers started to run straighter and deeper. Introducing a few dozen wolves into a 9,000-square-kilometer area not only changed the ecosystem, but it actually changed the path of the rivers. Any important change to an ecosystem changes everything. Economic rivers will change their course in Japan, and much like what happened in Yellowstone, the resulting ecosystem will be far more robust and diverse than it was before. It will certainly be a net game for the Japanese ecosystem as a whole, but the elk are going to have to work a whole lot harder than they've gotten used to. So innovation, it's not planable, it's not controllable, and it most certainly cannot be done top-down. So in this podcast, I'd like to give Japanese startups three pieces of bottom-up advice on what we need to do to kick this startup ecosystem into high gear. These are the three things we can do ourselves with no support or input needed from government agencies or venture capitalists. Oh, they'll benefit from the changes, of course, but it's our job to make this happen. So here are the three things we startups need to start doing in Japan. First, we need to understand the difference between a relationship-based company and a product-based company. All famous consumer brands are product companies. Facebook, Nike, Honda, Apple, Seiko, Google. Customers are attracted to them because of the product they make. On average, customers feel a greater loyalty to those companies than those companies do to their customers. Sure, all of these companies have developed a brand that acts as a kind of halo that lets them charge a premium price and sell a greater range of products than their competitors. But in the end, it's all about the products they make. Product-based companies can scale globally. But just because you make a product doesn't mean that you're a product-based company. In fact, most Japanese companies with products are not actually product-based companies at all. They're relationship companies. This is slowly starting to change, 
but the cultural importance of relationships has a long history here. When I started my first Japanese company back in 1998, the goal of almost every startup was to become part of a large company supply chain. Having that kind of a relationship guaranteed a steady, if low-margin, stream of business. These relationships were more important back then because although the Keiretsu were starting to crumble under their own weight, most companies still preferred to do business within their own corporate groups. And small to medium enterprises had very little independent buying power. In fact, these captive, protected Keiretsu micro-markets is one of the big reasons Japan did not develop a globally competitive software market in the 80s and 90s. At the time, an independent Japanese company that would sell its products across multiple Keiretsu groups was a rare and powerful beast indeed. For the most part, the way to survive was to build what your client, very often your only client, to build what they told you to build. Things have improved a lot in the last 20 years, but still, a huge number of Japanese startups are really firms that have one major client and no hope of scaling. They have a relationship that guarantees a certain level of orders, but they have no product that can stand on its own in the marketplace. Don't get me wrong. Although way too much importance is placed on relationships in Japan, it's great to have those relationships. Knowing the right people can give you a huge head start in getting your first customers and in getting distribution. But your product has to be more important than any single customer you have, or things are going to break down eventually. Now, it can be hard to tell if a company is truly a product company or if it's a relationship company in the early stages. And nearly all companies with a product will insist that they're product companies. But a few giveaways are one, if you are still or if you're planning on doing custom development work after you receive funding, then you're almost certainly a relationship company. Two, if your product requires extensive customization and you're the only company doing that customization, then you're probably a relationship company. Three, if your product started out as a project you did for one customer, and then you decided to turn it into a mass market product, then you're most likely a relationship company. Four, if losing your two biggest clients would put you out of business, then you are certainly a relationship company. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with relationship companies, of course. In fact, in the early stages, relationship companies often see traction sooner and grow faster than product companies. But relationships don't scale, and growth will eventually be limited by the strength of the CEO's industry connections. Of course, relationship companies can still make a lot of money, and powerful, well-connected CEOs can even take a relationship company public, but they can never scale to be a global player. Actually, relationship companies are fine. If you have strong relationships and want to leverage those into a company, do that. More power to you. The real problem 
is that this relationship thinking is holding back Japan's startup community. The tendency to value relationships over products is probably the single largest obstacle preventing Japan from really developing a pay-it-forward startup culture. I see it constantly. Far too many people view their connections and their network as something to be jealously guarded, as some kind of competitive advantage. And people who think along these lines are unlikely to make introductions without trying to extract value from them. Of course, there are plenty of Japanese who have, or at least try to, embrace the idea of open networks and paying it forward. But we're in the minority, at least for now. But we're going to change that. So, advice number one for Japanese startup founders comes in two parts. Part A. Never pay for an introduction of any kind. Never agree to let an organization take a percentage of financing that might result from an introduction to a VC or from coaching you on how to present to them. Most of these people are trying to scam you anyway. Likewise, never give someone a percentage of a deal that might result from introducing you to a potential customer. Of course, Affiliate programs and reseller programs are powerful tools. Use them when appropriate. But as a startup founder, if someone ever tells you that they know a prospect you should approach, but will only make that introduction if they get a percentage of the deal, politely walk away. You're dealing with a gatekeeper or a parasite, and their opinion is probably not highly valued by the person they are promising to introduce you to. Part B. Let's all start making a conscious effort to pay it forward. Promise yourself that at least once a week, no matter what, you'll introduce two people who would benefit from knowing each other or recommend another startup's product to a potential customer. Now, I'll warn you in advance, if you do this right, it will feel unfair. You'll feel like you're making five times as many introductions and ten times as many recommendations as you receive. But that's fine. It means you're doing it right. And you'll greatly benefit from this in the long run. I promise. And best of all, if all of us commit to this, open networks will win. And we can put the gatekeepers and the parasites out of business. Now, my second piece of advice for Japanese founders may seem a little bit harsh at first, but it's coming from a place of love, I promise. Number two, no one who matters cares about your passion. They just don't. Now let me explain. Follow your passion is one of the most vapid, careless, and dangerous pieces of advice that gets tossed around in the startup space. Naturally, you shouldn't stay in a job you hate and you certainly should not start a company which requires you to interact with people you dislike or to behave against your own values. But follow your passion is a stupid way to pick a career or a startup venture. Now, I've had an interesting set of careers so far, and in my 20s I was a professional musician. I was passionate. I was talented. And there were plenty of people around me who were even more passionate and who were far more talented than I was. After a number of years, I got out, as did most of my friends eventually. Aha, I hear you say. 
Quitting proves that you didn't have the passion to see it through. You only lose when you quit. Well, okay, that's almost circular logic, and perhaps there is a grain of truth to it. But, you see, I didn't quit because of lack of passion. Quitting music was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever had to do. And there are plenty of passionate, talented people who never quit and continue to flip burgers and to work part-time jobs into their 40s and 50s. Some percentage of them are happy, I'm sure, but a lot of them probably are not. It's a huge logical mistake to simply note that all successful CEOs are passionate and conclude that passion is the key to success. It ignores the thousands upon thousands of passionate failures. In fact, I think we have it exactly backwards. I don't think it's passion that leads to success. It's success that leads to passion. Doing something well, winning the game, seeing momentum build up behind you, being rewarded and recognized for something you've accomplished is motivating. It leads to and reinforces passion. Okay, so if passion is not a good guide for picking a startup venture, what is? Rather than use the mantra of follow your passion, you should use create value. Build something that adds value to people's lives. As Zig Ziglar once said, the secret to getting anything you want in life is helping enough other people get what they want. How do you know if you're adding real value? Well, if you're adding value, people are willing to pay for it. In fact, how much people are willing to pay is directly related to how much value you are creating for them. Passion for its own sake is selfish, shallow, and somewhat childish. It's not about you. It's about what value you can create for others. The other real problem with following your passion is that passion deserts you when you need it most. There will be times, sometimes long stretches of time, when running a company is just plain hard work. Some days or weeks are trying, frustrating, and they just simply suck. There will be plenty of times when you just don't feel like turning on the computer or picking up the phone. If passion is the only thing that keeps you going here, you are going to be in big trouble. There needs to be something bigger. Some people are in it for the financial payout. Some are motivated by loyalty to a great team. Many in the pride they feel by building something that customers find amazing. And some by knowing that they are creating value and making life a little bit better for their customers. And you know, the amount of money you can make as a startup or as a human being is pretty closely tied to how much value you can create. It has nothing to do with how much passion you have. I'm still far too young to be a bitter old man. But if I hear one more bubbly speaker at a startup event proclaim to the world how passionate he is about startups and how Japanese people need to feel more passionate about entrepreneurship, I think I'm just going to lose my mind. And to be honest, it's mostly the foreigners going overboard with this rah-rah passion crap. So let me be the first to say, screw passion. Make something useful. 
make something that adds enough value that people will love it and pay for it, and the passion will follow. When someone tells me that they have a passion for something, I think, that's great, but tell me what you've actually done. What value have you created? If you are just starting out, tell me what concrete steps you've already taken and, and what you plan to do next, and you'll have my attention. Don't get me wrong. Passion is a fine thing. But when you create value, and when you solve real problems, the momentum will build up, your revenues will increase, and so will your passion. You see, you don't follow your passion. Your passion follows you. And this brings me to my third, perhaps most important, and certainly the simplest piece of advice. There's a lot of well-placed concern that the current crop of Japanese startups is not ready to compete globally. In fact, a large percentage of the pitch events make going global their central theme. I get asked a lot about what Japanese startup companies need to do in order to compete globally. There are panels about this at most startup events, and it was one of the main issues discussed during our Disrupting Japan one-year anniversary live show. Actually, there's been tremendous progress in this area over the past five years or so. It wasn't that long ago when the majority of startup pitches I heard were either copycat companies modeled on successful foreign firms or based on ideas that would never scale past a few dozen like-minded individuals. While most people seem to want a top-down solution to the global competitiveness problem, the answer is really quite simple. If you want to build a global company, solve big problems. Solve problems that people all over the world are having. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with companies that focus on mobile gaming or Japan's otaku or anime culture. A small handful of them will do very well overseas. But most of them are too caught up in their own coolness, or perhaps cuteness, to really try to define what value they could potentially provide to a global audience. Current wisdom is that English language ability is the key. A lot of Japanese pitch contests are held in English. Rakuten and Uniqlo both now use English for all official internal meetings, even those held in Japan. And there is a real emphasis being placed on startups with mixed Japanese and foreign teams. These are all important and useful developments. English language ability is an important step in getting ready for global competition. But it's not the core value. Think of it this way. The global expansion, you could almost say domination, by companies like Honda, Sony, and Seiko in the 60s and 70s was not due to their English language abilities or their understanding of foreign cultures. In fact, during that era, Japanese firms had a well-deserved reputation of horribly misunderstanding foreign cultures, and they suffered a lot of bad publicity because of it. But the problems they were solving were so big, the value they were offering was so strong that they were able to succeed despite headquarters' lack of understanding of local languages and cultures. What they did understand was the global market. They were very much aware of the competition and the potential competition worldwide and reacted accordingly. So English language skills for startups, they're great, but you need to use them 
you need to be aware of what other companies in your space are doing. How are they positioning themselves? When are they likely to come into Japan? And for the truly globally ambitious startup, when can you take on the competition directly in their home markets? Now, our non-American listeners are undoubtedly thinking that an American like me is probably the last person to lecture anyone on the importance of understanding what's going on outside their own borders. And yeah, I admit it's true. We Americans are terrible in this regard. But the fact is that most U.S. startups don't need to think about it initially. That's not a statement of arrogance. It's a function of the way the market works. The U.S. market is so competitive and so saturated with startups that any company that gains serious traction is probably solving a big problem and solving it well. Japan's startup scene is not like that. A small startup can grow up unmolested and unchallenged in a niche market, at least for a while. But the world is small these days. If you don't take the fight to the competition, they'll bring it to you eventually. So English ability is a great first step, but the real key is using that ability to keep an utterly paranoid watch on what your global competition is doing. Learn their strengths and weaknesses. Steal their cool ideas. Consider yourself a global player from day one. And when it comes time to make your big move into overseas expansion, for God's sake, don't just send a team of engineers to set up shop in a San Francisco office. Either move the management team there or hire an experienced local team and trust them to grow your business. Now, I sometimes get accused of being a cheerleader for Japan. And it's true. I'm quite optimistic about the future of Japan in general, and Japanese startups in particular. I suppose part of the reason it looks that way is because so many people, including the Japanese themselves, are often hesitant to point out all the things that are going right in Japan. People also tend to ask me about top-down ways of improving things for startups in Japan. But top-down, things are going pretty well. The trends are all moving in the right direction, and there's only so much you can do top-down anyway. The real power for change in startups is, and will always be, bottom-up. So to summarize my three pieces of bottom-up advice for Japanese startups... One, products are more important than relationships. Make introductions. Give advice. Ask for nothing in return. Don't play ball with the gatekeepers and the parasites. You'll come out way ahead in the long run. I promise. Two, screw passion. Build something that adds value. The secret to getting anything you want in life is helping enough other people get what they want. And finally, Three, solve big problems. The bigger the problem, the more money you're going to make. Be a global company and a global problem solver from day one. Know the strengths and the weaknesses of your global competition and steal all their cool ideas. The trends for startups and innovation in Japan are positive and accelerating. Startups are already beginning to change Japanese society and the Japanese economy. Now, I'm not one of those people who think that all innovation is good or that innovation is synonymous with progress. To 
Technology and innovation is amoral. Technology amplifies our own nature. The fact that, so far, technology has produced net positive effects says more about the good in human nature than it does about any inherent good in technology. Like introducing butterflies into a forest, the introduction of startups into the Japanese economy will have both good effects and bad effects, the exact nature of which are impossible to predict before they happen and obvious to everyone after they have occurred. But Japan's economic ecosystem will be much stronger because of it. If you've got ideas about how Japan will be changing in the coming years, or if you'd like to continue this conversation online, come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 041, and let's talk about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.